Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. So there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Saturday, October 23rd. Mark, you have a whole week to buy a or Halloween costume. Yep, that's you. You're, you're Mr. Halloween. Oh, really? So Mark's son is going to be a firefighter. That's a nice one. I'm surprised he doesn't want to do an animal. I'm surprised it's not like some big floppy animal that he's going to do. No? Oh, so he's obsessed with fire engines. Okay, good to know for Aunt Jill. Very good to know. Hey, this weekend, we're going to take you back to the bad old days. I'm so sorry. We're going back into kind of the, the belly of the beast of the shutdown economy. We have author and professor and historian Adam Tooze. You may have recalled we had him on the program when he wrote his book called Crashed. That was about the 2008-2009 housing bubble burst and uh, all the uh, horrible things that happened after that. Adam Tooze, who's a Columbia University professor, wrote this book in a real time, meaning like he did it as it was all happening. And it's very interesting to have that as a, the beginning part of our conversation. Tooze, I just want to say he's a very, he's like award-winning. So Adam is the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Professor of History at Columbia University. He's the author of Crashed, which won the Lionel Gelber Prize a New York Times notable book of 2018, one of the economist books of the year, and a New York Times critic's top book. By the way, he was also in my piece 
when I did that piece on Sunday morning about the anniversary of the financial crisis. So, uh, all right, let's start our conversation with Adam about his process of writing this book and how it was so different than Crashed. Here is the first part of our conversation with Professor Adam Tews. You wrote this book, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy, almost in real time. How was that experience for you? Um, it, it was intense. I think most people had a pretty intense time last year. Um, I did it out of a sense of necessity. I, I, I'd started the year working on a very different project about the climate crisis and, and was focused on that and at some point realized I couldn't simultaneously engage with what was going on around us and pursue that other project. And, and furthermore, my thinking about the climate crisis was rather shaken by what was happening all around us. So I needed mm. to step back and make sense of what was going on. So I kind of got enrolled willy-nilly. And at some point, I mean, by April or May, it was clear I just couldn't do the two things at the same time and, and wrote this book instead. You know, when we think about the previous recession, and as I lived through that recession, as did you, I, I think in retrospect, we kind of could understand the choices that were made in real time, um, the choices of bailing out banks, the choice of not helping individuals as much. How did this crisis benefit from just having the financial crisis a decade before? I think it really did in the sense that many of the things that we needed to do were already rehearsed. And in the case of the Europeans, um, this book is a, like Crash Wars is a very much a sort of three centers, China, Europe, the United States. To deal with a pandemic, you also have to talk about the rest of the world and Latin America in particular. But if you look at in Europe, there's also very clearly the recognition that we need not to repeat the mistakes that were made in after 2008. So both at the, in the, at the level of say, the Federal Reserve, America's central bank, knowing how to do large-scale asset purchases, and, and boy, did they do them on a large scale in 2020. It was, some, in some cases, the same folks that were, were doing those, those policies the second time around. And in the European case, it was more learning the lessons of the past and ensuring that they, after a brief wobble in March and April in 2020, didn't repeat what they did um, after 2010. And so they came up with this innovative new form of collective borrowing, the ECB, the Europe Central Bank was much more cooperative. So in both those ways, repetition on the one hand, and then as it were, avoiding previous mistakes, we see we see learning. You just said that uh, the the financial crisis, which was uh, of 2008-2009, was often described as a black swan. You called the COVID crisis a gray rhino. Can you explain that a bit? Yes, yeah, so a black swan. The idea with a black swan is that it's something that's really unusual. And, and basically, you know, it's not part of what we expect. Swans are white. So one, when one turns out to be black, one is not surprisingly sort of stopped in one's tracks. And that was the idea about 2008. Banks were not supposed to suffer the kind of crisis they did. So it's a kind of by way of an excuse, really. This wasn't part of the set of options that people seriously considered. And you can't really, in all seriousness, say that about the pandemic. If you look at the people that you'd expect to have views about pandemics, the pandemic experts, virologists, epidemiologists, the folks that were in bioterrorism for 50 years, more or less, and certainly for the last 30 years, urgently, they've been saying, look, something like this could happen. And so the idea is that a grey rhino is the sort of risk that's like that. It kind of lurks in the background, you know it's there, but it's grey, so it sort of merges in. 
And you don't take it seriously until it's charging towards you at 50 miles an hour with that great big horn pointing at you that you suddenly wake up and go, oh, my God, you know, it's actually a rhino and it's coming to get us. That, I think, does quite nicely encapsulate the idea. It's also a, a, t- a term taken up by the Chinese leadership. So they they actually discuss the sorts of risks their regime might face in terms of black swan risks, stuff that you know you don't know that you don't know it. And grey rhino type risks are the ones that everyone talks about all the time, but because they do, they they somehow don't recognise that they could suddenly become real and and very serious threats. So this was something Xi Jinping was urging the cadres to be you know thinking about for several years now. So when you think back to um, the early parts of 2020 and there was the the first glimpse of what was happening, let's sort of stay in China since that's where the virus emanated from. After the Chinese government sort of was trying to sort of dust this away, how did the government there deal with the crisis? How do you think in, in terms of the economy, how did they actually manage this crisis that started in Wuhan? Well, what they first of all, I think, recognize is that something terrible has gone wrong. Um, this was not supposed to happen. The 2003 SARS had been a real shock for the Chinese communist regime. And they had put in place a reporting system that was supposed to prevent a local a regional disaster in China, um, as it were, being hidden away, tucked away by the local authorities and not reported to Beijing. China is so immense. One, one has to remind oneself of the fact that it's as though you're trying to govern North America, Europe and South America as a single unit. So their central haunting problem is how do we get reports from Santiago or you know uh, uh, Vancouver to HQ in London? How, how do we ensure that the, the message actually flows and they realized by the second week, third week of January that they really had failed in that respect. And then what happens is that they declare essentially a people's war and they call upon the agencies of the Communist Party across the giant country to mobilize to stop the spread of the epidemic. They quite rapidly close cities off. They prevent air, they stop air travel within China, not from China to the rest of the world significantly. That would have been for us to do, but within China. And they unleash the organizing capacity, the coercive potential, the cooperative capacity of the Chinese Communist Party, which has cells all over the country and in you know, not just factories and mines and farms, but in fancy new you know, housing projects all over, all over Shanghai, Beijing and so on. So through that mechanism, they achieved by the middle of February um, the containment of this outbreak essentially in Hubei province and in Wuhan in particular and some of the other major regional cities. And these are giant places. I mean, Wuhan has more population than any city in the United States, over 10 million people. And it's re- the regional cities are very big too. And that then enabled them to, to mobilize the resources of all 1.4 billion people in China on fighting the crisis in that province. The economy itself was really very severely hit. And it's easy to to underestimate this because China then bounces back. But if you'd stop the clock at the end of February, you would have to say that this was the most severe shock that the Chinese economy had suffered since the 1980s. And though we think of China as super modern and the big cities are, and though its average income is, is now upper middle income, so very comfortable, there are 600 million people in China who live on very modest levels of income indeed. No longer absolute poverty, bare bones, minimum. That they, The regime has made a very concerted effort to abolish absolute poverty, but, but very low levels of income. 
And, and those people were hit extremely hard. China has a large informal labor market, a lot of small scale private businesses, and all of those were subject to the same shocks that their equivalents in the United States and Latin America were subject to under conditions of a shutdown. So it became a major social crisis in China as well. It only turns into a success because we hand them the success. Right? I mean, um, it's really our failure that makes this into a triumph for their regime. Can you explain that? Tell me more. Well, to just go back to that analogy, if you if you had stopped the clock at the end of February, you would have said that this was the worst setback the regime had ever suffered, except, of course, the clock doesn't stop. And so what happens in March and April is an even bigger disaster, an even more shaming, humiliating failure of governance than the one that they had experienced in the rest of the world. It's our own goals, successively goal after goal after goal after goal, that we, you know, that we inflict on ourselves that allow them by... April, May to you know, stand before the world as the sort of triumphant power that, that conquered this disease. So you're saying that obviously that the, the inability for the United States and Europe and the rest of the world to step in at that moment in February and say, like, as you said, like, no more international flights, no more this, we're getting serious, like, that had that occurred, then the Chinese example would have been like, oh, boy, did they blow it, but the rest of us are so great. Exactly. If we, okay. had, if we had performed like South Korea, then there would have only been one country that had suffered a really major shock and it would have been China. And, and instead, the country which originated the disease, which had least time to prepare, that was most confronted with the sort of you know, original unprecedented quality of this infection, actually managed to contain it. And the people who had six weeks minimum to prepare themselves for this impact and fail to do so, become, as it were, its principal victims. And we're talking not just symbolism here or reputation. We're talking hundreds of thousands, millions of lives that were lost as a result. China's mortality per unit of population is orders of magnitude lower, even allowing for underestimation on their side. There is no credible estimate of Chinese mortality that places it higher than about 50,000 people in a population of 1.4 billion. Is there something about the the disbelief that occurs in real time that contributes to this just even as, I mean, there's sort of like this great advantage in some respects to have a totalitarian regime in China where you can just be like, let's go. This is the rules. Whereas, you know, in modern democracies, it's a lot harder. So is there something about the inability to kind of contemplate the worst that made us really bad at dealing with us? I do think that is key. The failure of our the imaginations of the political leadership of the West to really encompass the world that they have created, um, a world in which if something happens in Wuhan, it's not Chernobyl. It's not a small Ukrainian town behind the Iron Curtain. It's a node in a global network of international air travel, which means that if something bad's happened there, we immediately need to contemplate shutting down JFK. And anyone who'd recommended that in February, I think, would have been laughed at. But that would have been the appropriate way to react. So I do think there is a collective failure. And it's ongoing. This isn't something that we can just date to February 2020 and we've somehow gotten over it. It's ongoing in the sense that we're still in the middle of this epidemic globally. Thousands of people continue to die every day. Hundreds of thousands of people are infected. Every single one of those incidents is the risk of a dangerous variant emerging. We have the solution within our grasp, which is mass immunization with effective vaccines, of which we've now got a whole suite. And it is simply not top priority for 
global governance. There is no government in the world which is daily reporting to its citizens what it has done to make them safe next year by way of promoting the global vaccination drive. The only way any of us can make reliable plans for anything we intend to do next year would be if we actually were confident that the vast majority of the population were vaccinated next year. Otherwise, we're all just basically engaged in a gamble, a giant gamble, that the current batch of vaccines will work, will hold against whatever variant emerges next. And it is still, to my mind, just this staggering demonstration of the failure to connect the dots. This is not about altruism. This is not aid. This is not charity. It's literally the question of whether or not we can reliably plan summer vacation 2022. Now you just got me depressed because I was just thinking like before we came on the air, I was thinking, you know, I feel like maybe, you know, based on a lot of the numbers, it does look like maybe next spring we start to feel better about traveling internationally. And you're saying, no, not even close, right? Well, it could be. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is it could absolutely be that way. It could, it could. But you would want us to be doing the thing that would make it more certain. Right? Yes. And, and there is something eminently affordable within our grasp that we could be doing to make that more certain. Obviously, yeah, we live in a city like New York. You know, we're in a sense we've had a relatively good pandemic since May last year. The first phase was awful. It was a shameful, disastrous failure. But from that moment onwards, the city kind of got it together and we haven't seen the sort of up and down, open, shut down that they saw in several cities in Europe, in Berlin and London, where they had to go into a huge lockdown in early 2021. We haven't had that. We haven't had that because so far, you know, we got lucky. The Delta variant hit us by the time when we'd actually got 70 to 80% of the population behind the immunity shield. Right. That only works as long as it's Delta. But if the huge ongoing pandemic in large parts of both of the United States and the rest of the world breeds some new variant which overwhelms that immunity, we're back to square one. And who knows, it could be more lethal. I mean, Delta was just more infectious in the end, not significantly more lethal. You know, we're just we're just rolling the dice here. We're, we're again, like just taking for granted that we can come through this, even as the crisis is still ongoing. So this goes back to your more basic question. Is there a failure of imagination here? And is that very dangerous for complex democracies which are slow moving when it comes to a crisis like this? And, and I would underline that in red. That's exactly the problem that we have. We are not going to be authoritarian, nor would we want to be. And nor is it quite true, I think, to say that what China did was say, do this, do that. It's more, I'd like you to do this, show me what you can do. It's more competitive. It's more performance orientated in China. They simply say the will of the party is that life should have priority. We want to see you act. You really don't want to be Hubei. You do not want to be Wuhan, do you? No one would want to be them. And then you just let, you know, the awesome imagination and talents of, of the Chinese population and the people that organize them go on this problem. And unsurprisingly, they come up with, you know, rather effective solutions quite quickly. And across the entire country, Beijing's problem for the middle of February is to kind of rein in the enthusiasm and vigor with which local communities across the country were carrying out this common mission to stop the virus. That's what they've got going for them. It's not, it is, there is a degree, of course, of top-down control. The whole party responds to Xi. They don't tolerate the kind of nonsense that we tolerate on the airwaves in, in the West. There is an impatience and a, an exclusion there. Um, but above all, they grasp the problem, right? This is where they never, ever, there's no documentary evidence that the Chinese regime ever toyed with the flu analogy. 
No one in China ever said, you know what, we'll just let this burn through because that's mm. what we do. We'll tough this out. We know, of course, that, that they, have a, they have no regard for human rights as we understand them. And life is cheap in certain respects. They execute people for crimes that we would, we would barely even convey you know, uh, prison terms for. But their commitment to guaranteeing the security of the population at large is more cast iron, more committed than apparently anything in the West. They were not taking risks. And we continue to take risks. And again, let's think about the contrast. In China right now, the smallest outbreak of the disease is cause for another major lockdown. They basically have a zero tolerance threshold. They're the only country in the world that does. New Zealand has given up on that now. So that creates problems for them because they're more perfectionist than the rest of us. All right. So here's something you can do while you wait for the second part of this interview tomorrow. You can actually go and subscribe to Adam's podcast, which I happen to love the name of called Ones and Twos. His name is T-O-O-Z-E. It may be a little wonky, but give it a shot. You never know. Part two of Adam Twos we will have tomorrow. And we're going to talk all about the Federal Reserve and the response they had and what they learned from that first crisis. For today, all I need you to do is do something nice for someone else. That's it. So easy to do. Okay? Thank you. Grit, growth, grace, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.